Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the Waterline podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. People ask me all the time, Shane, what's the future look like? Are we going to flourish? Are we are, are we going to drive ourselves to extinction? Are we going to destroy everything? Are we going to create heaven on earth? A big part of that incredibly complicated question is water. Water is absolutely fundamental to life. And knowing what is going on with water, the various technologies, the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water around the globe is really fundamental to understanding questions like that. And if you guys are into science and learning about things that affect our lives and the world, which I know you are, I believe the Waterline podcast is for for you. I just finished a episode called Water for All Regulation all about comparing the different regulations in different areas like the Israeli water law passed in 1959 and comparing how their system of of regulating water compares to California's model of regulating and how We might work together to figure out the best pros and the cons of different systems all around the world. Very, very important stuff. Please check out the Waterline podcast on your Android app and at the iTunes store. Hey everybody, this is a super fun episode coming up. Uh, this was someone, another person lined up through my friend Peter McGraw, and uh, this was a marketing guy. I went in, I, I'm a, marketing isn't my wheelhouse, as you can probably tell by my marketing efforts on this podcast, uh, which is um, all the more reason for me to go out and try to learn more about it. Um, and But anyway, I, I went in to meet Rob Tanner, in uh in madison and i as i was setting up the equipment which takes me five minutes ten minutes or so to get everything going uh before doing sound checks and everything he already um had me laughing and was a delight to be around i could already tell it was going to be a great episode before i even hit record and uh, and I was right. Turned out to be a fantastic episode. So enjoy this episode with Rob Tanner, everybody. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Here We Are podcast. My name is Shane Moss. My guest today is Rob Tanner, assistant professor of marketing and soon to be associate professor of marketing. He hopes at the Wisconsin School of Business here at UW-Madison back near-ish my old stopping, stomping grounds, one of my favorite um, cities in, in the world and two and a half hours from where I grew up in La Crosse, Wisconsin. And um, and uh, we're here today. We're going to talk a little bit about marketing, which um, some of you listeners might be one. I've been going around um, the world, uh, the country so far, soon to be world, hopefully, talking with people about uh, what makes us who we are. So um, you you may be wondering, 
you know, from a variety of different lenses. And so first you may wonder what marketing has to do with what makes us um, human and all of that. But uh, well, it sounds like I'm going to learn a lot from you. It's uh, well, <laughs> perhaps. I mean, I mean, in, from my perspective, I think we're all kind of uh, there in in a sense where we're all a bit um, walking advertisements for ourselves. And well, we all have a personal brand, I guess. Yeah, um, and uh, which you're wearing a cardigan right now. It says something about yeah. I, sure I confess, I do try and um, play the eccentric Englishman, a little, <laughs> which my students appear to find novel. So I, I think I do play up to that a little bit. <laughs> it's working quite well. Um, when did so you're from um, near-ish London? I'm from a town called Epsom, which is about 15 minutes southwest. It's a 20 minute ride on the train uh, from London. People have rarely heard of Epsom, but it is where Epsom salts. I believe, were discovered. So we do have a claim to fame in our little town. The next time you have a hot, mineral, salty bath, you can think of Epsom. <laughs> thank the Lord that we discovered those salts. I don't know the last time I've had a hot um, mineral bath. Well, you're missing out. Sure you, could be, you could be drawing toxins out of your body and generally relaxing. And with two broken ankles, I think it would help a lot with your pain. I have a, I have a, an enormous um, hole in my foot because the surgery um, stitches ripped open. It's called sloughing, I guess. Is Ooh. a fun thing. Well, so that you I, sloughed off a part of your foot. Yeah, and Ooh. so I have a big hole and i can't imagine that getting salt in that hole yeah i can't <laughs> honestly say that epsom salts would help with that you'd have to ask the <laughs> but maybe ask the epsom people um is this is this part of a marketing campaign that you're writing for the uh epsom no it's it's completely i'm doing it just out of the kindness of my heart to publicize you know my namesake town salt i i don't get a cut um you know but i've spread the word right across the u.s i think so i um, should get a cut Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, let's give a plug in for um, Porsches. Well, while we're at it, maybe maybe we can uh, get a free automobile out of this podcast. <laughs> if you think that, I'd prefer to have a BMW, maybe. But okay, um, BMW. Yeah. See, there you go. Yeah. Um, so this is so I was I was put in touch with you through my uh, uh, my good friend Peter McGraw, who was on a previous episode. Um, he claims to be funny, I believe. Book. He claims to know something about being. Oh, it's not the same funny. thing, is it? It, it is. A, it's a bit different knowing what's funny and, and the ability funny. to produce. It's, right. it's like being like a. Sports I've never observed him being amusing. He's a good laugher, though, <laughs> which is much more important. Right. He laughs at all of your jokes. Right. Way better yes. than a funny yes. person. Yes. I would rather have a good laugher. Right. Uh, just to feed my right. own. Yeah, he definitely ego. fills a niche there. A niche there. <laughs> good for him. Um, I so I looked over some of your work. And uh, one thing that I thought was exciting was that uh, you're you're also you're an evolutionary psychologist. Well, or, I wouldn't say or, I was an evolutionary psychologist. You? Um, you know, in marketing, you can sort of pick what you're interested in, and our, our field is a little bit at a, a crossroads between different methodologies and different theories. Um, but I definitely have an interest in evolutionary psychology in the sense that I'm interested in subtle visual cues um, that can influence consumers. You know, be it a face or a brand you only see out of the corner of your eye. Or if you're in a crowd, does that um, cue of crowdedness affect you? So I'm interested in subtle cues that affect consumers. And if you dig into why they would affect consumers, often the answer is something that sort of is related to evolutionary psychology. You know, So we have this evolved fight or flight response in crowds. So I find that finding things that significantly affect consumer behavior often are very basic primal uh, types of instincts. So I find there is a link between this kind of evolution psychologist who figure out these 
old primal uh, motivations, if you will, and I try and link them to behaviors that are of interest in the sort of modern world of consumption. Uh, yeah, it's amazing to me the possibilities of what evolutionary psychology could possibly explain. And, so, and sometimes, you know, it's speculation and everything. But, but just the idea of, um, so, so you're, you're a tree, you want to get a seed far away um, to plant somewhere else. What you can do is you can advertise this seed by mm -hmm. making um, a delicious fruit for a bird to come by and eat. And so you stumble upon this little trick, and then maybe you stumble up, uh, upon the color red, which contrasts mm -hmm. itself against... Or you could design really cool packaging that floats in the ocean and uh, sends the product a long way away that way. Right, exactly. And and then these birds come, and so that, that kind of takes off, and then, um, and then the birds or whatever animal then, then grow a bit more of a... Uh, fondness for this color red after a while because if they're drawn to it then they're finding more mm -hmm. of this resource then you skip forward millions of years and exactly. who knows maybe this is why blush is something that we find the interesting thing is we've been around a very long time and you know we're just living in an instant of sort of humanity's evolution so i think a lot of our behaviors especially our automatic behaviors which are what i'm interested in really are have been determined by a very long period of of evolution. So really to me, it's a source of ideas as much as anything else. You have to get your ideas from somewhere. Um, and you know, you hope to think of things that turn out to genuinely influence people. So I just tend to look through, I use an evolutionary psychology sort of playbook to just come up with ideas as opposed to necessarily being an evolutionary psychologist, which is right. probably something that, you know, I wouldn't describe myself as. Right, right. I understand. I use evolutionary psychology in my uh, comedy and uh, that doesn't make me not quite no, no. but close <laughs> i mean i don't know there's an official definition so uh, yeah yeah we could uh, probably both join the society if we wanted to <laughs> um and so so you're talking about um some of these non-conscious yeah it, is there a consensus on what we're calling this is it subconscious unconscious non-conscious the, the, um, that's a good question I think some people do draw distinctions. I don't draw any distinctions. So um, if, if a behavior manifests non-consciously, subconsciously, automatically, I'm pretty much talking about the same thing. And I, I use those words indistinguishable in most of my writing. Um, occasionally, you might, someone might even use the word subliminal to describe the effect of something on you without you being aware of it. Really, any behavior, I essentially study behaviors that affect the consumer's behavior, but they could not describe to you why it occurred. That is, they are not aware of the true source of the behavior. So, and I described those, you know, probably my most common terminology is automatic, but non-conscious, subconscious, those are fine too. So how do you measure um, this, this um, kind of uh, response to stimulus? Well, it, I think what you really mean is how do you know it is automatic or non-conscious? So uh, I guess an example would be um, appropriate. So for example, um, we have a study where we get people to um, just do a series of gambles so like a coin toss, you can win, and each round you can decide whether to gamble again. So essentially you have 10 rounds of gambles. And we have people either do that in a room with a few people in the room or in a room that's very crowded. Um, and what, what turns out to happen is in the room that's very crowded, after a loss, because you lose 50% of the time, in the next round, the people in the crowded room are very reticent to gamble, whereas the people in the uncrowded room gamble much more. So it appears, so this was, you know, based on a theory I had that being in a crowd invokes this fairly ancient avoidance motivation, which makes you more sensitive to risk, which makes sense, right? Because crowds can either be competing for resources in a, uh, in a sort of a resource gathering sense, or they could be an enemy. So crowds are often bad. Um, 
But when you ask these people afterwards, why didn't you gamble an X? They never say it was because the room was crowded. They say, you know, I was thinking through the probabilities. So they have no awareness. Uh, and they don't know there's another room with, you know, fewer people. So it's not that they can sort of figure it out. Oh, so, yeah. So essentially, the, the sort of one of the tests that we use in our, in our research is to debrief the participants. And if they have absolutely no awareness of the true reason that on, on mass they made a different kind of choice. Um, so that's one way. The other broad way that you might sort of prove something was automatic is to, is to present the stimuli to the participant in the study in such a way that it is impossible that they would know what it was, which sounds weird. Um, but for example, I've done some studies where I show uh, participant stimulus in a subliminal way. So for example, I quite a long time ago, I uh, did a study with uh, retail brands. So for example, I exposed participants to, um, to either words like Nordstrom, kind of high-end, uh, nice stores, or dollar store. Uh, but I exposed them very briefly and such that on the screen, it just looks like a flash of light. So the, the participants in the study thought they were playing a flash of light game. They had to tap the keyboard if the flash was on the left or the right. Um, but actually, the brain can pick up those words in an automatic fashion. So the automatic, if you, if you will, part of the brain can read the words. But you have no conscious idea. So afterwards, when you say, how was that flash game? And they say to you, you know, it was fun. And you say, did you see anything in the flashes? And they'll look at you and like, they were just flashes of light. Of course, they didn't see anything. So they literally have no idea they saw the words. So when those words affect a choice in a subsequent experiment, and in this case, we asked people to choose a gift for partaking in the flash of light game, and they could either choose a higher-end branded product or two lower-end, lower-branded products. And it turned out that the people who'd seen the low-end flashes were more likely to choose the low-end products and vice versa. But it pretty much has to be an automatic process in that sense because the conscious mind has no idea it saw the words. Right. So in that, in that sense, we can really prove that it's, uh, I mean, it's all a bit, how do you define automatic? But clearly there was no conscious role because they weren't aware of the words in the first place. Right. It's so interesting to me too, the way that people will justify then their behavior. Right. They'll knowing. talk themselves into all kinds of explanations and often will be very defensive when you tell them <laughs> that X, which we don't normally do, yeah. but occasionally we do out of curiosity. And people can be quite defensive that, um, they could have behaved in such a way. I know why I think the things exactly. that I we think. Exactly. It has been a fairly well-studied phenomenon. We really like to believe we're in control of our kind of movement through life. And the reality is our bodies, our mental systems are making, you know, trillions of tiny decisions without intruding on conscious thought, you know. So when you almost hit that twig and you move your head out of the way, that all happens automatically. It's not like you think there's a twig. Okay, I move my... It just happens automatically. Right. And that kind of thing is by far the dominant um, part of our behavior, the, the part where the homunculus, the little driver of the brain, sort of processes a lot of information in conscious thought and makes decisions is a really a small part of our, of our you know, total behaviors. Right. You could ask people, why am I, why are you breathing right now? They might understand that this is right. A they are, but they're certainly not process. constantly checking to make sure it's working. Right. It's, it's um, an automatic process. Um, I've, I've actually started my own experiment um, recently. So I sell these little, um, uh, Part of my merchandise after a show, I have these um, silly little mustaches that go on beer bottles, right? So you drink okay. the beer, it looks like you have a mustache. That must be an American piece of humor. Uh, <laughs> it's not a part of my act. It's just a <laughs> dumb way to sell people bullshit to make a little money after my um, souvenir. But yeah, I, I I know with your Monty Python shit, you guys are so above a silly mustache. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> With your sophisticated... Well, I guess if you you sell it while doing a silly walk, Uh, possibly... That's what makes it so sophisticated. Exactly. There has to be some bodily humor. I mean, a mustache is just hair. That's dead. It's not funny. Yeah. (laughs) 
so um uh, so i have eight different colors oh well that's right that's so improvement so this is so please please do give me a hard time through the whole uh, uh, no no one's been bold enough yet to mess with the comedian i i respect your uh what do you charge your, for these mustaches? confidence i it depends so are you priced we'll, by we'll, color? we'll get back we'll get back to the color thing no i don't okay. i i don't um price by color so so i usually charge uh it it depends about 50 50 i, I tried different ways oh, and hence the then I'll see what happens mm-hmm. no this isn't the experiment just wondering what i charge i i typically charge two for five dollars okay um and it's got like my website on the back so it's a good advertising thing and all of that right but what i found that it, is that if i charge one for five dollars three for ten dollars or eight for twenty people will be like five dollars for one some sometimes right. people might raise an issue with that right but then they think they're getting this real bargain when right they get that's a fairly standard 20. marketing tactic right right i don't know if you stumbled into that or if you if you realized I've it was... read a few things okay, okay. um and, and uh but but this is interesting um with what we are talking about so i have eight different colors right Sometimes I'm running low on a particular color. It mm-hmm. might be a color. If like, I buy the eight pack, I get all eight colors, do I? Yes, you do. Okay. Oh, well, you can choose also any like colors you want. People also like to see variety to some extent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it intrigues people. Sometimes people want all black and pink for like a wedding or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, well. Um, and so, so then I have I have some colors that don't do as well. Like um, oftentimes brown won't do as well, right? Well, so I have these eight different colors in like a tackle box, okay? Um, eight, eight different trays. fishing tackle. Yeah. Um, is there a different kind of? Uh, I was. I was. I, I, I was I, in England, if you said tackle box, I'm not sure what people would think. But um, yeah, like a like a craft. I got it from like Hobby Lobby, mm-hmm. like a you know art uh, art and craft um, kind of thing. So eight different um, colors, eight different places for these to go in, oh. and sometimes um, I have less of a particular color mm-hmm. in. That um, it, it and uh, like I'll have less brown ones just because I didn't I didn't right. I'm like I'm not gonna reload the brown ones they don't sell anyway. Do customers then infer they're in demand. Yes, they do mm. very much so. So any color that I'm looking to get rid of, they'll take that color and and I've taken to asking people why did you pick why did you pick blue? Oh well, blue is what, what my son likes the color. It's my son's favorite color. Is uh, no, that's not why you. That's actually kind it. of interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know that anyone studied that in the, in that way. That would imply that if restaurants have some old food they want to get rid of, they should just tell you we've only got four steaks left today. Yeah, um, as yeah, opposed to exactly, we we have four leftover steaks from yesterday. Right, you don't add that part. Just. <laughs> just Reveal the scarcity. Um, uh, there, see, I've I've proved my. Um, ah, you might be in the wrong profession. Maybe you could become a sort of a comedian professor. Uh, I I mean I think that there's a lot of different um, uh, a lot of different studies that I could do while on the road. I had, um, and I think about evolutionary psychology all the time when it comes to my act and and selling stuff. I I was thinking I I recently was at a show in Michigan. And I had to stop some girls. They were getting a little chatty at their table. I said, so, uh, what's going on? What's so interesting over here? And, um, you know, uh, uh, one of the girls is very flattered. It's not like this happens all the time. But one of the girls was like, we were talking about how cute you are. And then another girl was like, well, we were actually debating whether we, we would think you were that cute if you were off stage, which is a very valid 
question, actually, and that's a lot of variables. And what I would like to do one day is to take just pictures of myself, show them to, you know, I'm meeting scientists. It'd be very easy to run mm-hmm. these kind of studies, mm-hmm. show a picture of me on stage, show a picture of me just in some neutral setting, see what gets rated. I mean, for- I think it's a little bit similar to what we do in class, that when you're at the front, kind of with all that attention and a, and a bit of kind of social power, you come across a little different than if you were just walking down the street. Ah, yeah, yeah. So, so you, um, you, you sometimes have, um, uh, you sometimes get attention from females as a well, professor. Well, we, we don't discuss that. Oh, obviously, right, in academia, right. that's very frowned upon. Um, and I'm married, but yeah, my non-married yeah. colleagues, I believe, occasionally have, of, um, it's happened in the past. Have, have, have you know, struggled with that. I just ruined your career and marriage. All in <laughs> one, one, one Happily married, I might add. Uh, how long have you been married? Uh, I was almost going to say forever, but my wife uh, uh, neither, neither my wife or I know what day we got married, which is kind of weird. I think most couples know their anniversary, but the reason is that is because bizarre. of uh, basically our, our immigration attorney said I sh- we should get married quicker than we planned to. So we quickly went to Vegas and got married. Have you, you know, meet her here? Yes, in Chicago. Um, we actually got married by Elvis because we thought if you're going to do it in Vegas, then do it in Vegas. Um, but then we got married formally for our family and friends later, you know, for the ceremony. Uh, but we can't remember the date of the Vegas thing. It's probably on a certificate in the attic. Uh, but we don't celebrate it because we don't know the date. We, so it's just kind of fallen out of favor. But I think about 11 years. Although I Somewhere around 11 years. Yeah. Still going uh, strong. Yeah. I take it she's listening. Um, I, <laughs> um, so, and when did you... Uh, she's from here. She's from Chicago. And, and um, when did you move to the States? I moved to the States about 11, 12, about Oh my God, a long time ago now, about 18 years ago. I came to do an MBA at the University of Chicago with plans to go back. But then one thing led to another, you know, long, long distance relationship didn't work, got offered a job afterwards, and then here I am. How um, do you like Madison? I'm an accidental Madisonian. Oh, I love Madison. I think it's one of the greatest places to live on the planet. Uh, it, I'll ask you now, and then I'll ask you around January. Oh, yeah, it won't change. It won't change. Um, I mean, clearly, I own a convertible. I'd like to be able to drive it in the winter. That is a disadvantage. But I like snow. I like snowmen. And, uh, you know, the, the lakes freeze. You go strolling on the lakes, look in the back of people's houses. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it's not that bad. And in the summer, it's so perfect. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, such, it's just such a perfectly sized city with very high ratio of academic people or, or educated people and more Priuses than anywhere in California. And it's just a really nice place to live. Lots of farm-to-table dining. Um, the students are great. I love it. Lots of drunks. As, as well, well, I mean, could be I mean entertain- Halloween's right around. Friday and Saturday night, you do swear weekends. quite a lot when you drive around, and there were students who maybe <laughs> had a few too much to drink. But you know, you learn to time your driving around them. How long have you been uh, at this school? I've been at this school almost six years. It's the only school I've ever been a professor at, so it's all uh, I know. Okay, looking for that uh, associate professor status. I'm right. Gonna, I'm going to hopefully by uh, Christmas. I'm going to send a letter to the dean. I have a I have a lot of weight around here. Yeah, you know, I, I would I'm imagine from you Wisconsin. Do. The gold <laughs> headphones probably carry a lot of them. <laughs> Just go walk in with my gold headphones and demand you <laughs> you um, get a raise. Um, so I I was uh, as you were talking about um, um, various ways that you can um, prime people subconsciously. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of of uh, something that I read um, regarding advertising, advertising restaurants. And, and you can advertise this 
restaurant as a little tucked away hole in the wall. That's um, that's a, a cute little local um, place. Or you can advertise a restaurant as like this is the big um, you know chain reliable chain like cheesecake factory that that sort of whatever however you would review that right and then they show people um videos of either a um horror film or a romantic comedy and if people are primed for romance Mm -hmm. they would select the little hole in the wall place and if people were exactly and and i would classify that 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 for my that would fall under an automatic um, explanation. The, the, I think the layman's explanation is we have this top of mind area that kind of temporarily holds all kinds of things, but it holds you know certain words, certain moods, certain meanings. And when you put something in that sort of temporary hold in the brain, in the short term, we're not quite sure how long it is, but certainly you know it's multiple minutes afterwards. Anything that fits with that uh, short term area tends to be in favor. Um, so you can pride people in all sorts of ways. You know, from there's a fairly famous study which actually doesn't replicate that well, but I do believe it where. Just having people um, think about old people causes them to then walk down a corridor more uh, slowly. Yeah, yeah. I've or if you that. prime people with to, to think about libraries, they start speaking more softly. So we have all these. We, essentially, our, our brain is full of meanings, and those meanings are linked to cues. And if you prime people with the cues, you can think of it as a network model. So you think of a very complex. Why not series put up of, billboards of old people and restaurant re, or it might improve uh, on, behavior. on, on yeah. the um, on the interstate to right. get people to slow down it, rather it, than saying? I you mean, know, I think radar that would detected. be the prediction that people would probably, uh, unless people hate their grandparents or something, you might get <laughs> you might get some backfiring effects. But in general, uh, it probably wouldn't be a huge. Uh, I would think actually putting up pictures of libraries might cause people to just quieten their behavior really it could that, do it, i mean it's, it's probably a better way to spend money but um yeah yeah you know, well i don't know i've seen if a we lot were in of charge and we could try whatever here. we wanted then um uh, yeah so basically i think you know if you think about all the meanings in your head trillions and trillions of meanings you've learned in your life each of them is associated with a whole bunch of textual cues that those meanings grew up with you know so for example libraries as you grow up going to libraries you associate it with quietness so that's one of the links that there is to library. And all ah. priming really means is if you bring up the cue, it's often enough to light up the meaning of the thing it's attached to in a, in a sort of a network model of memory. So a lot of priming research really is sort of identifying different links. I mean, that's maybe a cynical view, but it, it just turns out that a lot of our behaviors are automatic and just exposure to the cues can light up the meaning of the whatever it is, and that can then affect your behavior. I mean, I think that's incredibly fascinating. I, I find it a little bit scary at times do you sometimes a lot of people do find it scary because as i said we most people even some academics so let's say economists economists kind of stereotypically don't like the notion of automatic behavior they like their kind of core belief is that we all have a utility function we're very rational we think through every decision we're kind of automatons really and so then sort of consumer psychologists or psychologists social psychologists come along saying well we think a lot of behaviors are automatic and so economists don't get on too well with that they want to believe because their profession is always kind of been based on this central assumption that humans are very rational. So they can, originally, and some of them still, were very defensive of the idea that a I'm lot of our behavior was automatic. I'm surprised that argument is still even holding up that well. You, you'd I mean. be surprised, especially in, I think they, I mean, they're gradually retreating, um, but still for things like, you know, buying a car or buying a house, big important decisions, they would probably argue, I think still, that people have a utility function. They do all this research. It's all very conscious. You're not influenced by anything contextual. It's, but, you know, I'm at the other end of the extreme. I think almost everything we do is at least partially influenced by something that you're not aware of. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think that um, I think that the big important decisions sometimes our our brain is doing even sillier rationalization than what we realize. I think you you mentioned buying a car. I mean, I think that it's overwhelming thinking about all of the different choices mm-hmm. when buying a car. Mm-hmm. You you get in. And you're like, your subconscious goes, this one smells good, <laughs> you know, because there's a million different factors. I, I had a uh, I had a friend recently. I used his car as it, it's one of those idiot savant kind of people, a genius comedian, uh, horrible at everything else in life. I used his car. Right. I'm much taller than he is. He gets in his car later on. I'm with him in the passenger seat. He's like, you broke my car. I'm like, what? What do you mean? And he's like, yeah, the seats. It's I'm like, oh, just pull the lever, move it up. He's like, what levers? Like, you're just finding out now <laughs> that the seats in cars are adjustable. I had to teach him how to adjust the seats in his car. I'm like, how are you buying cars? Are you just, well, this one fits. I guess I'll take this one. I mean, I, I, I think even our, our complicated choices Um Boil down well, that obviously wasn't a complicated choice for him because he didn't know that there were buttons. <laughs> right, right, right. But I mean, you know, a rational person shouldn't purchase a car based on color, you know, but lots of people do. Well, you see, that's an interesting argument. Um, why not? It depends how you define what rational is. Right. I mean, and I think economists historically defined it in a very narrow way based around kind of utility that's measurable. Like a meaningful. consumer reporter kind of right. way. Right. So, you know, if it uses... If it uses less gas and is therefore cheaper to run, that's a rational reason. It's kind of economically sensible to buy a car for that reason. To buy a car because it's bright orange, as I would, versus a boring, generic, you know, grayish color, I, I, typically doesn't fit under the definition of rational because you can't really, really rational, I think, sort of converts to money. Like, is there a way to link it to wealth or something tangible? Um, but I don't think that's a good definition of rational. Um, so, for example, taste, color, if you get enjoyment out of that, I think that's just as an important part of your overall utility as is the pleasure you get from saving money. Um, so I, I really think it's a very semantic process. How do you define rational? Right. And historically, economists have defined it in a narrow way. I don't think they're wrong. I just think they define it too narrowly. Uh, especially um, considering that money is a relatively new thing in our, not that we haven't necessarily been bartering for a right. long time, know, but exactly. we didn't evolve with these, um, we, we didn't evolve with these credit cards and dollar bills. And I mean, I, I don't think our brains are really. Um, it's a pretty minor thing, for, I think, in the grand scheme of things. We, we, we certainly maximize some kind of utility, but we maximize pleasure. We, we, we maximize things that make us feel good. And those don't have to be things that economists think we should maximize. They can be things that maybe we have evolved to want to maximize that are nothing to do with sort of human definitions of wealth, et cetera. Um, so, yeah. yeah. I think that's um, it's incredibly important because most people are just going after, I'll win the lottery, then I'll be happy. And that's a whole weird thing that I don't understand. That's very unique to your country that the belief that you have a chance to win the lottery is apparently much higher in this country than... And uh, I, I don't know why that is. I saw John Oliver saying it's because Americans are so profoundly optimistic, which is a really cool trait, but it can backfire when oh, it, it leads you to believe that you should be planning for your lottery win because, you know, you're not going to win. Um, yeah, of course. Well, but, I think uh, we're much more cynical in England. So you, you, your country, very optimistic people, which I really like. Uh, and in England, we're a little more cynical. Scotland maybe even more cynical. Um, but... It does mean we don't buy as many lottery tickets, so we do have something over you, I think. Right. I mean, uh, well, I, I guess 
I guess the point is, is, is people think, um, you know, I'll, I'll become an associate professor and then I'll, I'll write a, a best-selling book and then I'll, I'll make uh, $10 million and then I'll be happy. The, the, the idea that like this money go, I mean, not that money can't uh, necessarily influence things, but we aren't consciously able to, I don't think, factor in everything that is going to um, affect our enjoyment. No, and you, and you don't really understand it till you get there. Um, so I guess it's really just how we how we imagine it is different across cultures, maybe. Um, so you did a little bit of work with um, with people being overly optimistic, didn't you? Oh, that was a long time ago. Yeah, I yes, saw some I did. of your earlier work. Yeah. Uh, so basically, we were looking at. Um, well, let's take a step back. So I was just interested in um, what, what essentially why do people. What is the process underlying why people are so optimistic about what they will do in the future? So for, there are a couple of classic examples. There's something called the planning fallacy, um, where if you ask people in the future how much time they will have for, especially philanthropic or self-improvement activities like, so for example, how much time will you spend exercising uh, next year? People are always, will always, almost always claim they will exercise more next year than they are currently. And they really believe it because in the, the future will be different, right? They have these plans <laughs> to change Get in control of their lives. And in the future, where things are more hazy and abstract, um, and similarly, if you ask people um, how they rate on, let's say, certain traits. So imagine I asked you how honest you are compared to the average American. So if you ask a lot of people that question, everyone thinks they're above average. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's called the above average effect. So you have things like the planning fallacy and the above average effect. where people Except with memory, I just found out with a a recent guest. When you ask people how their memories are, oftentimes they'll be like, oh, my memory's not so hot. I wonder if that's because it's sometimes advantageous to claim memory is not great. I well, he he thought that maybe it was because memory was you got feedback immediately. And so like you forget oh, someone's name be, right. and you go, well, so I'm we're, an idiot. So you're constantly getting feedback that you don't, whereas the the hazy future of exercise, the feedback is not constant. Um, yeah, that could be. Um, it, so anyway, um, sorry, we were interested in... Um, why is that? Is there a process we could identify? Because, one, you know, in academia, there's several things that your peers like you to do. One is to identify interesting effects, like people are too optimistic, but then to sort of describe the psychological process in a way we can get our hands around it. Um, so what we think we discovered with these optimistic processes is the reason we do it is when we estimate, let's take the future as an example, we jump to the future, and the process of imagining how you will behave in the future starts with an assumption. Um, and that assumption is typically too optimistic. People imagine themselves exercising. And then they test that assumption in their head briefly. They're like, well, will it be a bit more than that or a bit less than that? But they start with this assumption that it will be more. So we default to these, we call them idealistic hypotheses. Um, and once you've defaulted to that, you then do do some testing around it in your head to see if it's realistic. But because it was too idealistic to start with, you never move far enough away from it. Um, so we call that a selective hypothesis testing process. But basically, we, when we imagine our future behavior or how we rate to others, what first comes to mind is this default, I will do better, I am better. And we never move enough from that idealistic point to realism. Um, so actually, one way we demonstrated this, we asked people how much they would exercise in the future, and they told us, you know, X. And then we asked them, if everything was perfect in an ideal world, how much would you exercise in the future? And, they, and the two groups basically told us the same number. So the people who were explicitly trying to be ideal and say, well, you know, and I, if everything went perfectly, I would exercise this. Estimated they would estimate the same as ordinary people, which sort of tells us that the ordinary people are thinking in an ideal way. Because when you ask people to be to really explicitly be ideal, they give the same answer. Um, so that that kind of was one piece of evidence that we just default to idealistic thinking without knowing it. When especially when we think about our future behavior, I, it's 
you know, even knowing that you do it, it's hard to stop yourself doing it. So the way we, we actually found a way to de-bias people, which is we would first ask them, what would you do? So we would ask them, for example, in an ideal world, how much will you exercise in a year? And they tell us, you know, like 10 times a week. And then we say, how many times do we exercise a week in, in a year? And the other group, we just asked how many times they would exercise a week. We didn't ask them the ideal first. And what we found was if you first get people to think about the ideal, it seems to help them understand what ideal is. And then when you ask them again, they, that, that contrast enables them to be, say something realistic. Um, and, and, and it really seemed to work. So we actually tracked some behaviors and found that if we got people, if we got um, a prediction of a future behavior and we asked ideal first and then we asked, we actually got answers that matched to what actually happened. It really seemed to fully, completely de-bias people. Um, so it's actually a useful trick. My, my co-author's wife, um, when she's, but when she's, I don't know if she still does this, but she claimed, I remember her telling me this, that when she goes shopping for kitchen gadgets, um, she asks herself, ideally, would I use this? And the images of her using that, you know, spice grinder <laughs> flood her head. And then she's like, will I use this? And then she realizes the contrast. Whereas if you, she says before she, before she and uh, uh, my husband, my husband, her husband and I did this research, she would default straight to the idea of her using the spice grinder, but you need the contrast of, mm, it'll probably just be in the cupboard. Um, so she says it's a useful trick to stop yourself ah. buying rubbish, which is to ideally imagine if you would use it and then ask yourself, will I use it? I'm going to use that <laughs> trick today. I'm going to decide. <laughs> I, I'm, in, I'm in the market for, um, for a, uh, a speaker, um, just a little, a little Bluetooth speaker. Oh, yeah. I, I have, have a, I have a thing that um, went out in my car and, and in between now and getting my stereo fixed, I thought I'd have this because I also want something for at home because my Laptop speakers aren't enough. And in my head, I was already like, well, I'll, I'll use this quite a bit because sometimes I'm washing dishes. And, and now, as you say that, I'm like, wait a sec. This is going to be one of those things. It sounds things like you maybe do have a legitimate need. I don't, you'd have to make that decision. I think this is most useful for things. We've, we've all, well, for example, exercise machinery, which typically is bought and then used to hang laundry. But kitchen gadgets are a really good example. People, a lot of people are, have cupboards full of kitchen gadgets that never come out. There's something about, you know, it's like a juicer and you imagine yourself, I'll be drinking fresh juice. Oh, this yeah. will improve my life. It's very easy to have this future image of yourself healthier, drinking these green juices and being a great, <laughs> you know, a really wonderful human being. Yeah. And then the first time you use it, it tastes disgusting and it smells and you can't clean it um, and you put it in the cupboard. But so in, when you're standing in the store looking at that juicer, we find it helps. If you first imagine this ideal and then you just say, then you try and ask yourself, will you use it? It's a lot easier to be realistic once you first characterize what the ideal imagery that is, is and sort so of put it in a cupboard and say, that's ideal. I need to focus on reality. And then sometimes, you, you know, maybe they're the same, but it helps you figure out if they are, I think. That is, I mean, that's incredibly useful. This is If a, you're a, a big buyer of kitchen gadgetry, I think I could change your life. <laughs> well, my Free ex. up cupboard space. So, so, you know, I had limited kitchen space wow, in my I old mean, apartment with my ex, and she would always bring home, I know one of them was a mini pot pie maker. Oh, good Lord. I know. <laughs> That's, That's a classic what example. I said. I know. This is, I needed you to talk to her. But when she was in the store, she imagined making you these fresh pies. Oh, it's pies, just a kitchen The relationship of, would be improved. Yeah, yeah. There's chicken pies. There's dessert pies. Children singing. Pot pie parties. <laughs> and then uh, you make one it doesn't come out very well and you put it in the cupboard <laughs> made one came out pretty damn good still put it in the cupboard <laughs> i mean that that's it. i mean that's incredibly it this is one of the i think fun things about the 
podcast. I, I never paid attention in school. I never went to college or anything. I was going to be a comedian and I just have my heart set on that. How's college going to help me? And I, I always wished someone would have had a decent answer for when am I going to use this? And, and I'm getting so much of this. On, on, I mean, that's a lot of what this podcast is about is like, there's actually things you can use to, mm-hmm. yeah, to, uh, to improve your life. Yeah, absolutely. Declutter your kitchen. And uh, I mean, I think just um, just as far as your um, non-conscious instincts and drives um, aren't always in line with what you might consciously want, what you, what your genes are driving you to do mm-hmm. uh, are not necessarily the same thing as what you as an individual um, will no, or what society from. wants you to do. But that's a little outside my purview. Uh, I tend to focus on the consumer behaviors, right? Other behaviors. Um, so what did you, uh, so when you did that optimistic research, um, did you ever, uh, were there any kind of, um, hypothesis about, uh, about what exactly, um, was going on as far as, is this like a goal setting mechanism? Do you think what, why are people envisioning this idea? I wouldn't quite describe it as a goal. It, actually, if it, a counter argument would be, it would be. If we go back to evolutionary psychology, it would be evolutionarily advantageous if your beliefs about uh, what you're going to do in the future were a little bit too optimistic, if that helped you get to a better state, if it, if it served as a goal, right? So if, you know, typically you exercise six times a week, but in the future you believe 12, maybe that's an advantageous progress process because trying to get to 12, even if you're going to get to eight, having a target that is out there. So some people actually, the, when we were having this work reviewed, said you're basically treating, you're trying to de-bias people maybe being too optimistic is actually beneficial. Right. Um, and there's a whole bunch of evidence on both sides of that. Um, and there is actually, a, I think, a little bit of evidence in, in the medical sciences that really believing good things are going to happen can help recovery. Um, but that's a, that's a bit of its own. Typically, I right. come out on the side of realistic beliefs, are, especially, you know, I'm in a business school, so we, we're not trying to get people well, but we are trying to, for example, create plans that we can stick to. Um, and so, you know, subcontractors being way too optimistic when they put in bids for things doesn't help anyone. Right. Um, so I typically live in a world where getting people to be more accurate is a good thing. But there is this counter argument that sometimes optimism maybe is a helpful force it, it exactly as a goal to aspire to. So there are some people, I think, who, are, who might argue that humans are too optimistic for a reason that can be beneficial. And I think I, I would say it's selective, right? If, if, you know, if you have a way that can help yourself de-bias, and you have some volitional ability to use it selectively. So like my friend Cindy, who in the kitchen store says, wait, think about <laughs> ideal first. I think that's probably actually helping her. Right. Um, but that's a fairly small, silly example. It may be that optimism does have positive effects. It's just that in this particular piece of work, we were trying to figure out how in environments like, you know, time to complete construction or whatever, we can get people to be more accurate. Because the interesting thing is the brain does have the information about how long it will take. But for some reason, it tends to be too optimistic uh, for reasons other than just trying to win the bid. You know, if you strip all that stuff out, which is kind of strategic, people still really believe they will do it quicker than they actually will. But the information, the true information is in there somewhere. You can get it out. That's what I found so interesting. We could get people to give more accurate estimates using this technique, which is just kind of fascinating, really. That's absolutely fascinating. And um, and it's it's just as fascinating. The idea of if you could use this selectively, it, I mean, you're really... Right, yeah, but that's tricky. Me- I mean, clearly it's hard to know when, when it might be advantageous and when not, especially as so much of it happens automatically and you're not even consciously involved anyway. So it's a bit of an uh, impossible 
dream that you could sort of say, well, these four, I need to turn on my realistic technique. And so, but for, on the odd occasion, like standing in, you know, the store, maybe you can have a sort of a disciplined approach to make yourself be a little bit more. Yeah. Um, knowing how susceptible time when you go to, to the, the grocery store. Right. Some, yeah, yeah those 10 pieces of yellowtail that I think hmm. I'll eat from Costco that actually people throw away. I think Costco is another great example, though I didn't study it, that um, these amazing value massive packs <laughs> that people buy because they feel like they're saving money. And it's, you walk out you know, the door with so much stuff. 40 pieces of bass is going to make me so healthy. And then and I got see six people. Tires I asked a colleague, he, he was interested in this, and he said, My wife bought, I think it was 25 giant Costco pack of 25 pieces of all organic fantastic yellowtail and i said to him two years later how many did you eat and he said two yeah yeah no because <laughs> when you buy it you imagine all these different meals you'll have and you'll be such a different person you won't be in processed food but then it just stays in the cupboard that's so interesting and like like you said the side point is sometimes if it's you know if it's bigger i like you know, I, I'm going to I'm going to start this podcast and and it's going to catch on and it's going to change the way people think. And, and yep. people are going to view the world differently and people are going to have all this new consumer advice. And are you saying and, our audience and, is only two people? Uh, uh, this is uh, you and me <laughs> hopefully downloading this and your wife now, which is why we keep talking about how wonderful she is. So she that's is three. a fantastic woman and I appreciate her listening. To and, you know, everyone's going to and I'm going to change the world with this. And but. Oh, here, I, I told you to turn off your ringer on your phone, and then I did not take my own advice. And, and, but, but the point is, is that me having these maybe idealistic, maybe unrealistic um, fantasies. Well, that are, might be an example where it's positive, though, because it, it, right. it may be acting as a goal to you. To so now I'm still driving around and, right. and doing research and right. interviewing people. So maybe and, I really don't know where the borderline is between optimism that is useful as a goal and optimism that is, you know... But I think part of the reason is when, when your optimism envelops other people. So when you're telling other people, I'll complete X by Y date, and then you don't, and you let them down, right. kind of ripples of inefficiency spread out as everyone else has to revise. But when you're just working for yourself, maybe it's not so, maybe, that, maybe that's a, a, an area where the goal effect can sort of be beneficial without hurting others. And there's something about predicting time to complete that is especially bad with optimism, I think. That's somewhere we can all improve. But what you're describing is more of a sort of an aspirational state, right. which I think does serve more as a goal. And it may, you may have certain gravity to get to it, which is positive. So, you know, I don't have all the answers on when optimism is a, is a force for good and when it's from the dark right. side. No, I mean, I was... I just happen to study it from the dark side. Right. That's which is very interesting to me. But I was I was thinking about it with... Um, I was thinking of uh, I rap music, um, actually. I, I, I just got into um, this guy Lyrics Born. I started listening to a bit. And um, uh, recently, anyway, I'm thinking of rap. I'm thinking of like a lot of it's uh, talking about like however many golden toilets and you know BMWs and all this ridiculous stuff. And I, and I was sitting there. I'm thinking, well, why? How can this be a good message in any way to anybody? This, uh, you know, this is horribly fiscally irresponsible. No one needs any of this stuff. I think golden and, toilets germs die. So uh, <laughs> very healthy, I believe. Yeah. You know so much that's, about minerals. You know about gold. One. You know about salt. You really. <laughs> I have a platinum you... <laughs> one in the attic, when I have diarrhea and stuff. <laughs> um, but but the point. But then I was, you know, as you were saying it, I'm like, yeah, you know, this isn't what uh, inner city youth needs to hear about. They need to hear about practical advice about going to college. But then part of me is like, you know, uh, there's a lot of people in such a horrible, dire situation. That have 
the, their lives have been such that their circumstances, they have this kind of learned helplessness for mm-hmm. all of these bad things happening True. all the time. And I mean, maybe it is inspiring to, you know, have Yeah, these- I mean, not being an expert in that, I would, I'm not sure because if you, if some, it's a bit like the lottery, right? If the, if becoming a rap star is the out, it's so unlikely to happen right, right, right. that you don't want to divert too many resources to thinking right. about that. But if it shows you that just an out is possible and that you don't have to exist in this learned helplessness, I can never make, you know, if, so if it gives you general motivation that it can, something can happen, then it could be positive. So I don't know. I, that, that could, I, from my perspective, that could go either way. Um, but obviously as a university professor, I think, I do think we should be encouraging people to get education. That's ultimately, oh, uh, yeah, that's absolutely. ultimately and, the best and thing me you can do. having no education still encouraging Yeah, I don't know why we let you in here, actually. Uh, <laughs> There's a little alarm going off up there. <laughs> I've uh, I've I've taken uh, I take classes online. One of them was from a UW Madison uh, professor. There's there's a lot of wonderful. Uh, you can you can learn on your own. Was it you a can read. Or I'm trying to. Oh, it was about online um, or something. It was about genetics. It was a uh, Coursera. Um, oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we have a few pre- offerings in that. I think. Yeah. Pre- I'll make a, a, a projection that my dean will dislike. I probably shouldn't say this. I think that will be dead in ten years. All this massively online. I think it's a phase. Really. I do. It reminds me of, um, so what, 15 years ago, I was working for a consulting firm called the Boston Consulting Group out of business school. And there was this, what I think, conceptually similar thing where all these B2B exchanges exploded on the internet. So what we were being told was all, me- all commodities, metal, wood, glass, all, all this stuff that are currently sold would all go through these exchanges. So like I, for example, worked at a startup for a company, it was called Metal Spectrum. And all these different metal companies sent their best, some of their best people, their digital people. We, you know, we were in an office of 400 people. And the belief was that in a couple of years, all metal would be sold through this very efficient exchange, right? Mm. And a couple of startups were listed on the NASDAQ. They were worth billions of dollars. This was supposed to be what happened. And they all failed. And everyone went back to just selling metal and everything the way they used to on the phone. because it was it just. And I, I see a lot of parallels with, mm. it isn't clear to me that there's any innate advantage in education, any innate advantage to the schools, especially the sort of top 50 schools, um, to have massively uh, massive online courses, except maybe a little bit as kind of general promotional tools to draw people to their standard offerings. Oh um, yeah, it's not good for the universities. But I think at the moment, this is, it's just like the internet. These these B two B exchanges, everyone's worried that it might take off, and that they can't be the one who doesn't is not a part of it if it does happen to take off. So a lot of people, I think, are defensively saying, "Well, we have to be involved in case," hoping that it doesn't actually yeah, change the world. A lot of that. And, and it's you know sometimes. It, you seem like a Luddite if you don't think, and technology often does change the world. I just don't think it's going to in this case. I, as a comedian, this is something that I deal with endlessly. You know, yeah, you got to be on Twitter. You got to be on Facebook. Oh, now Instagram. Okay, do I have to get on that as well? Do I have to waste my time with this thing as well? Um, you're, you're right. I, I mean, it might be, I don't know if it could be a threat to a university or if, if it's something that'll just go away. From my perspective, as someone that just wants to learn a little bit, I don't need a degree. I don't need anything. I think they are uh, incredible. Well, that's resources. the thing. They are. I can see that too. And if, if if your only goal is to increase the spread of education, it seems like any kind of massive lower cost online education has to be a good thing. But the institutions providing it have to make money, or they won't exist. Right. Exactly. And if it at all conflicts with their traditional business models, or if they can't monetize it as much, at the end of the day, I just don't see it having long-term legs but i'm come back if you're still doing podcasts in 10 years time and if mooks and coursera have taken over the world you can <laughs> slap me around and we can have the have the op, the prediction that was in fact too lacking in optimism uh, and just ridicule me um 
So I like that we're just going to slap each other around. That's 2024. What that <laughs> One, can, somebody can, gets slapped. Right. Well, <laughs> well, you're not necessarily saying you think they'll take off, though. So. Um, I think I think they might. I you mean, I, okay. I, I think that you're able to get... I, I think even if you're... Say, say you're at some podunk tech college somewhere, and now all of a sudden you get you can get a... Uh, like I took a class from this guy Robert Sapolsky on on human behavior, who's one of the best minds in the world. Yeah, but I you mean, see, that like, class can never match his his real class because you right. can't talk to him. You can't go to oh, that, that, and and he can't grade you properly. It's important. Right. So you lose these core elements of of a good piece of education. You lose the interaction and you lose the ability to really have involving assignments that have proper feedback you just you have to design these you know sort of mass grading techniques that can be used and you have to simplify and you have to use multiple choice and that just gradually waters down the experience of course the advantage is you are listening to someone who's not the guy at podunk so there's a it's kind of a trade-off but i just see it i know you're right i mean part of the reason why i'm doing this podcast is because i don't have anyone to talk to about any of this stuff that i'm (laughs) that i'm learning and so this is a good way for me to trick people into um (laughs) uh, helping me out Uh, but devil's advocate is also i mean uh you know the early days of college and professors was was a lot of just uh or or even churches you could say was a lot of there was just uh, books were incredibly expensive, so right. you would just sit there and listen to one guy, or you know, read a book to you because not everyone. I think could churches are a, a good metaphor, actually, in that part of I'm not religious, but part of the Neither. part of the benefit of, of of churches is the the social interaction, and part of the benefits of being a student in a college is, you know, a big secondary part of the benefit of going to college is learning how to live with people and learning how to. Uh, interact with people and, and the keggers those are important <laughs> right. drinking upside down with your legs in the air which is a very important skill <laughs> yeah. i see american students master much quicker than british students but a lot of those skills require you to go away to a college not take classes on your screen at home so you know if, if, if education suddenly became remote distance i think a lot of the benefits of that college education would actually go away um which is another reason why i think um I realize I'm taking an extreme view here, but I'm. No, I don't. I think, think so. 2024 Coursera won't exist. I and I'm gonna get slapped right in the I'll face. I'll probably get sued by them. <laughs> um, uh, well, I won't be invited to teach. <laughs> <laughs> so you won't have to waste your time. Um, so I, I, I have I have two other like big uh, questions to kind of sum up before I do that. Um, charity of the week. Charity of the week. Um, so the only disadvantage I um, discovered in moving to the States, unfortunately, I caught Lyme disease. Um, not sure if I caught it in Michigan or Wisconsin, but in the Midwest, which has caused me pretty much nonstop pain for the last four years. And something you learn about the medical system is I always took the naive belief that the system works. And, you know, when I heard people complaining, well, I'm not sure I was that sympathetic. I, in hindsight, it was terrible. Because now inside the medical system, I've discovered that certain diseases are essentially ignored by the medical profession for reasons that are nothing short of politics. And Lyme disease, unfortunately, is um, a very political disease. The Infectious Disease Society of America doesn't take it very seriously, although I think we're getting to the point where they realize they're wrong. And so you have all these patients with this horrible disease. I'm lucky that I can afford to go round the uh, bad doctors and pay for good doctors. But many people can't. And um, and especially children who run around outside, I think are particularly susceptible to Lyme disease because you run around outside, you're likely to run into ticks, and that's where... Typically, you get Lyme disease. So this organization, Limelight, um, focuses on trying to help children with Lyme disease who cannot otherwise get help, either testing or treatment, in a world where the sort of mainstream medical professionals drop the ball on 
Lyme disease. It often won't get diagnosed. As a curious aside, I have diagnosed two people myself who had been told what? they had all their problems. And the medical professional had essentially said to both of them, this is what you have. You're done. There's not much we can do. In both cases, I thought, sounds exactly like Lyme disease. Sent them to my doctor where they were tested. They did, in fact, have Lyme disease and are now getting appropriate care. And if you think, probabilistically, Uh, if Rob just bumbling through life has diagnosed two people, if you scale that up, unless I've been, unless probability just happened to put these two people in my path, I believe there are an awful lot of undiagnosed people out there. That is unbelievable. If I ever get healthy, I'm going to become an active, um, I'm going to try and work to publicize better. Um, but it's hard to do when you're sick all the time. Well, but we're starting right now. Starting right um, now. And and uh, so when did you get Lyme disease, did you say? Uh, probably about four years ago. I, I, my um, wife, who is otherwise a wonderful person, owns a cottage, or her family owns a cottage on the shores of Lake Michigan. It's beautiful. Um, but to get to the beach, you walk through a little dense patch of woodland, which is full of deers and ticks. Uh, so I discovered a tick on me one day, fully engorged and full of blood. Not used to ticks in England, so I screamed. You know, uh, My wife was like, oh, it's just a tick, and burned it off with a lighter. And then six months later, I started getting really, really sick. And the doctors are like, oh, if... what, they, what they tell you, we're going off topic here, is they tell you That's you have okay. fibromyalgia, which basically means pain and we don't know the cause, right? Which is, so that's not actually very useful to say you have pain with it. But they, they, that's the end of the road for them. And they say, take painkillers for the rest of your life. Sorry if you have to stop working. Um, but, you know, fibromyalgia, we can't teach it. My doctor, I eventually found, is like, fibromyalgia doesn't exist. It's an excuse. There's always a cause. We just have to find it. Um, and in my case, the cause was Lyme. Um, That's amazing. So if you're ever told you have fibromyalgia, question that diagnosis would be my advice. And um, I mean, I'm from Wisconsin and a lot of my fans are around the Midwest. So this is something that affects you. Affects Wisconsin is ground zero for Lyme. Yeah. If you look at the map of Lyme, I mean, it's almost like, I, I guess it must be because maybe Wisconsin collects the data better, but it's really dense in Wisconsin and it seems to not go over the border to, so much um, to Minnesota, Michigan. I, I, but so regardless of whether it's data, there is a lot of Lyme in Wisconsin and I think a lot more than there used to be. And so hopefully in 10 years, your ordinary family doctors will be much more aware of it. But right now, and my doctor completely admitted to me, she never thought to check for it. Um, you know, they just, they just miss it and they just go down this checklist of what else could cause pain. And in fact, you have all this bacteria in you that is living in our gardens. And um, hopefully the medical profession will get better at it. Okay, rant over. So, no, no, uh, absolutely. You're more than welcome. That's very important. What I, what I um, wanted to ask, so say you, want, say you want to create a billboard and add something like that. You want to create awareness for something like Lyme disease and you're trying to use maybe some some, uh, some See, in that case, I don't think you would want to do anything. I want to fully engage the conscious minds of the medical profession. Oh, okay. I wouldn't want to do anything subtle. It's not like trying would to... Would you want know, to go optimistic or would you want to scare people? Um, well, I'm not sure either. I mean, the problem <laughs> is a very unique problem that you, it's... Okay, we'll spend 30 seconds on it. So basically, okay. the Infectious Disease Society of America has 12... I think it's 12 people on a little committee and they get to determine Lyme treatment. They determine Lyme guidance for the whole country. And so you have all these, you know, fantastic family doctors who want to do the best for their patients, but they don't know anything about Lyme disease. So they look to these guidelines. And these 12 people have ties to drug companies who don't want to treat Lyme disease. It's like a classic political fuck up, basically. It's like corruption. It's really a horrible thing when you understand it. But these 12 people get to determine the treatment. And then other countries follow America because they think they must understand it. They're the most advanced country in the world. So Australians won't treat Lyme patients, probably. Canadians don't treat Lyme. And they say it's because, well, we follow the infectious disease side of America, which is just 12 old men. Um, (laughs) 
who, you know, it's almost like a political party thing. It's like they won't admit they're wrong. Um, but gradually, this committee is changing and people are, and I think it will change, but it's a big problem at the moment. And um, So I, I, this is a thing where advertising wouldn't help. There are 12 people who need to be, either have their minds changed or be removed from office. Right. So it would be more a political solution, I think, um, than unfortunately an advertising one. I guess the one way you could use sort of marketing would be some kind of viral campaign to create, a bit like an anti-smoking campaign directed to create anger at the source of the problem, which is the 12 people. So there was a very successful advertising campaign to stop smoking called the Truth Campaign. Um, so historically, cigarette advertising, I'm going off at a wacky tangent here, no. I'd always tried to tell you, don't do it, it's bad for you, right? And if you tell kids especially don't do it, they just go and do it. Right. It's a really, what I did it's a really bad way to stop people years. doing stuff is say, yeah. don't do it. Because it, we have this, this psychological uh, property called reactance, which is, don't you tell me what to do. Mm. And then you go and do the opposite. So, and for years, this is what cigarette advertising did, but it changed with the truth campaign. Instead of saying to kids, don't do it, the ads instead said, these people in this building don't care if you die. So the ads changed from telling you not to do something to saying those cigarette executives don't care about you. And now, if you're feeling rebellious, what do you think? Those people don't care about me well, fuck them. I'm not going to smoke their product. Um, so they shifted the psychological emphasis of the ads from telling you not to do something to just pointing out that there was a group of people who didn't care if they hurt you. And that made people angry at the exact, and then they didn't want to smoke the cigarettes. So similarly, the only thing I can think to do marketing online would be to create some sort of campaign designed to make people angry at the people, really the infectious disease side of America, who control the healthcare of so many people via their silly little committee that doesn't appear to look at science. And there has been actually some sort of viral outrage on Facebook that has been, I think, getting... To, it's very interesting. So last year, the Infectious Disease Society posted an innocuous little tweet Facebook post. What can your society do for you this year? Probably expecting two people to say... And they got like, when I last looked, like 9,000 angry people saying, why don't you start treating Lyme disease? <laughs> <laughs> and then this drew the press's attention. Why do you have 9,000 angry replies to this silly little Facebook post? And, it, you know, so... Maybe you could use some kind of um, virality to, um, but it's very hard to do that deliberately. It kind of has to well up naturally. Anyway, enough. I didn't mean to ruin your podcast. With you didn't ruin my anything. Lime cast, no, that was, my lime. That was, that was um, uh, this, what part of the uh, podcast, and it was all very interesting stuff. It does. It brings me to uh, one of my final uh, thoughts. It was just about um, uh, cultural difference. We talked about rap. We talked about the American. Uh, healthcare system. We talked about uh, Americans being overly optimistic, and clearly, uh, you think London, uh, uh, London has a much better comedy because they don't uh, laugh at <laughs> oh, uh, beer mustaches. <laughs> I said better comedy. I did used to go to the comedy club in, in um, Leicester Square, and yeah. I've been to um, the several of the. I've been to Second City, and I want to. I don't want. I'm going to sit on the fence here. I enjoyed them both tremendously. They're yeah. a little different. Um, but I think, I mean, obviously the British are famous for a certain cutting sarcasm in their humor, which I don't think Americans tend to have as much, but you guys have some other stuff. So I'm curious, have you, and I don't know that you would necessarily know as much about this since you started here. Um, but, but as far as how marketing, um, goes and as far as like commercials and ads, do you mm -hmm. notice a cultural oh, there's difference? vast difference? Really? Vast difference. I mean, it's similar to the difference between our TV shows in that everything, t to my eye, uh, maybe because you have to please such a mass audience of different political and conservatives, it's quite watered down a lot, except on pay TV. So the, TV in America is more like HBO all the time. And I'm not, I don't mean the quality, which is, you know, HBO, I mean just 
not showing the world through rose-tinted mirrors all the time. You know, much more kind of, you can do much more stuff. Like, you know, there can be like sex between males and, you know, it's just much more a reflection of society than American TV, which is a bit of an, to come back to optimism, a bit of an ideal, a certain narrow view often of, um, so British, and then the ads tend to be um, much more creative and willing to go in lots of different directions humor-wise that would probably be too much in the States. I think mm. the British just have a lot more um, ability to sort of suck up. You know, we have ads that, um, for example, we have uh, uh, ads against smoking and driving that really have graphic, terrifying scenes, which I don't think you could get away with in America. And like in France, they'll have ads um, for like condoms showing a, a woman looking around houses and thinking about how loud her orgasms will be in different rooms and whether it would annoy the neighbors, which is fine in France. But in America, that would cause outrage. Um, so I, I think even though England is somewhat between Europe and America culturally, we just are, we're less outrageable. Um, we, 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 so our, our ads, are, uh, you know, I think if you watched 100 and then watched 100, you would be more entertained by the British ones because they, they're allowed to do a lot more than... Like boobs. You put boobs in them. You can put anything uh, in them. As long as it's, you know, for cancer or whatever. But in this country, right. you, should, you know, a legitimate ad for breast cancer, it's hard to put breasts in it. Yeah. Whereas in England, it's not. Mm. Um, so we just, I don't know. It's, it's a little different. But, you know, maybe it's not as different as I think. It's, I only live in one place at a time, so you're never exposed to both so, simultaneously. Um, so in closing, I, I was hoping you would share um, some of your uh, research on, on face. Oh, right. Well, this um, is one of the more recent things I've done. Um, I can't link it to boobs. I'm just, uh, I'm just trying to think okay. if there's a good segue. Well, I guess they're like 12 we inches below the face, segue. aren't they? So, <laughs> um, so if you move up 12 inches, I've actually studied a different part of the body. Uh, no, so I became interested in... in um, so as I said at the beginning, let's, let's go full circle at the end. I'm interested in very subtle visual cues and how they can affect consumers. And it occurred to me that there's a massive amount of research in marketing on things that go in ads. Because, you know, as you would expect, people study that in marketing. There's very little research on faces. And yeah, I think faces are the most ever-present cue in ads. Because there are almost always people in ads. I think if you were to go through like a million ads and say, what's the most common thing in all of them? It would probably be a face, one kind or another. And yet there's very little research on how faces automatic. There's none, really, in marketing at all until I came along. Um, so I, I, I did one very narrow thing that I was interested in, which is can... Um, celebrity faces influence us when we don't know we've seen them. Because, you know, I have this interest in subliminal and automatic. So what I did was I came up with this paradigm where you may have seen it. You can, there's software now that can morph two faces together and you can choose the percentage of each face. So for example, we could create a composite face with 20% of your face and 80% of mine. Mm. So what I did was I, I, I produced composites with 70% of what I would call stock models. So just, you know, attractive males and females that I found on the internet, unfamiliar people and 30% of celeb certain celebrities. So you, then you get a face. And if you show that face to people and say, does it remind you of anyone? They cannot perceive the celebrity. It's not an, at 30%, they don't recognize, say, Tiger Woods in that face, consciously at all. But then I asked people to rate the trustworthiness of these faces. Um, and I also, uh, okay, so let, let, I'll talk you through an example that kind of makes it clear what was going on. So we, we made this face out of 30% of Tiger Woods and 70% of a, a guy of similar age and attractiveness to Tiger Woods. And we showed it to people and said, how trustworthy do you think that guy is? And by, completely by chance, this is the luckiest thing that's happened in my career. We did that before the Tiger Woods scandal broke uh, and at the height of the Tiger Woods scandal. So he went from oh, being not exactly beloved, but respected to being, you know, enemy number one, you know, Lothario, right. you know, running, you know, 15 women at once. And um, so before we did it, and we, and we had a control condition where we just had the face unmorphed with the tiger. Before we did it, 
that tiger morph, people said they trusted it more than the control. Not because they said they recognized tiger, they just felt it was more trustworthy. So, but at the height of the scandal, they hated the tiger face. They said uh, it was extremely <laughs> untrustworthy, even though they weren't recognizing tiger. So basically amazing. what we figured out is, and, and it's, it's kind of a complex story, but we think you carry around a very summary evaluation of people you know in a sort of, an, to go back to revolutionary psychology, a sort of an approach or an avoid sense. Are they a friend or an enemy? Are they someone I should trust or not? So prior to Tiger's scandal, the average person in our study were categorizing him on the positive side. And even though they weren't recognizing him, they were picking up this good approach vibe and rating that they would trust him. But then at the height of the scandal, when the press was constantly saying, bad tiger, bad tiger, evil tiger, you know, um, they flipped and they started with still without recognizing him. That's amazing. Um, and we actually did the same thing with George Bush. And it didn't work the way I wanted to. I thought people, I didn't. Just fudge the I data. I didn't check that people, whether people trust George Bush. Oh. And it turns out actually that after presidents leave office, they get more and more popular. I didn't know this because I'm not from this country. So apparently there's a gradual forgetting of what you did in office and, and it just becomes a more warm and fuzzy. Anyway, so we got the same result, a similar result to, to Tiger pre-scandal. If you mix George Bush's face up with the standard face, people trust it more. Uh. I was hoping to get the opposite and make this grand political statement. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't work. And I think maybe the reason it, it, it's a very high level approach or avoid evaluation. It's really not do you trust that actual person. It's just would you approach or avoid them. And presidents are safe. You know, they stand for kind of freedom. So I think unfortunately that's what drove the morphing result, mm. not what I was hoping to do. I, uh, I was sneakily hoping to get a dig at the Republicans. You got to use say, Dick Cheney. Just a little bit of, yeah, I think Dick Feeney's face is probably enough to just prime evil. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think so. You know, uh, people will start imagining horns. And, so, and, and who's, uh, uh, who, who would be the most trustworthy? I, w- I would think that, I bet a Matt Damon would do pretty well. Yeah, newsreaders are very Freeman. trustworthy because they only ever, well, not if you watch Fox. This is getting too, it, but newsreaders uh, <laughs> um, typically won't do ads because advertisers offer newsreaders a lot of money because they're very trustworthy people because they just sit there telling us the truth. Um, but yeah, from uh, also from you know people that play characters, we tend to attach meaning to the characters, not them. So anyone who plays a lot of you know Morgan Freeman plays God, and um, so, and I was thinking of doing it with Hitler because um, it's actually it's hard great. to get people who have a tremendous negative evaluation. Uh-huh. But Hitler has a mustache, and that completely screws uh. with the morphing. Um, there's a famous serial killer, I think, in this country that everyone you recognizes. You can't take, you can't, you can It's harder than you would think. It's harder than you would think. Then, in uh, the, it, huh. it probably is possible, but, um, it's, but anyway, um, so basically what, what we proposed, this, this, this is what I can do as a professor, but I don't have to deal with the reality of it. We think you can make print ads more effective by instead of using stock models, mixing celebrity faces who have positive, uh, valence into those faces. And even though people don't recognize it, because if you actually put the celebrity in the image, First, legally, you have to pay them. Secondly, there's two processes go on in the consumer's head. They, they might automatically feel something positive, but they also know they're being persuaded. And sometimes that correction process is like, oh, I'm not going to forfeit just because Tiger's selling that car. But if you hide the face so they can't do the conscious correction, then maybe you just get the benefit of the automatic um, mm. effect. And this, I think, all my data says it would work. But of course, celebrities don't want part of their face being mixed. They would want to charge for that. But it's a very ethical gray area because you can't see it. So how will they know it's in there? Right, so, yeah. So that's not my problem to deal with. You could probably design a computer that could check if photos had had 
um, celebrity faces hidden inside them, I believe. I mean, I'm thinking right now I'm having the cover art done for this podcast and, and one of the so designs sell more, might be my face. Rather than using your face, mix a yeah, little bit of yeah. some very... Mix a bit of Matt Damon in there. Yeah. 30% yeah. Matt Damon and sell a few more CDs. Ah, that, that's a solid advice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I only take a 10% cut of it. Uh, only is 10%? That, is, is a thirsty what a deal. bargain. Yeah, tomorrow it would have been 15%. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, well, I'll, I'll come back ten in 10 years. I'll, oh, well, in I'll the 10-year reunion when I'll give Coursera you 10% doesn't exist, I get my royalty check. And then you can check. slap me in the face. That's going to be a very good <laughs> yeah, day for you good 10 show, years yeah. from now. Yeah. Um, Rob Tanner, thank you very much for it's joining me today. Um, uh, thank you guys so much for listening to the Here We Are podcast. Check out the website and, um, uh, yeah, check me out on Twitter and Facebook. And support Lyme stuff. disease. And support Lyme disease. Support fighting Lyme disease. Exactly. Don't support the disease <laughs> Don't itself. Throw ticks Don't at feed it sugar or anything. <laughs> Thank you guys very much for listening. If you enjoyed it, please rate it, share it, do all that good stuff. You know what to do. And tune in next week as my childhood friend Paul Phelps comes on the show. He's an eye surgeon now. I thought I'd mix it up a little bit. Eye surgery. That's a a science, right? Uh, I was in town. I thought, what the heck? I'd I'd hear uh, how eye surgery works. And he taught me how to identify eye cancer. And now I know everything there is to know about eyeballs i'll take a look at yours if you need me to just tell your friends to listen to this podcast and i will give you a free eye exam all right talk to you next week goodbye are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are Hello, I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, The New Frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, the 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. (laughs) Like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype and that he has come for his cocaine. As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, he spots his dear friend who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. 
Tchau, Bela. Isso me, Scarface. <risos>